the irony is that people on the left who don't like capitalism or would like to do something about it often show up late for meetings to do anything about it. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 76th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday, the 30th of December, 2016, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Tony Norfield to the show to talk about his excellent new book, The City, London and the Global Power of Finance. We discuss the role of Britain in the current geopolitical scene and how and why finance plays such an important role in the UK economy. We also talk about why neoliberalism is a much overused and misused term, the recent Brexit fiasco, and the rise of China and the new Silk Road. But before all that, I have a few people to thank. First off, the new monthly subscriber, Paul H. Thank you, Paul. And of course, to the new YouTube subscribers, James Delaney, Jericho 271 and Resilience Code. Thank you all. To everybody else, please like, subscribe, share, tweet or leave a review for the show over on iTunes. It really helps spread the word. So, to the interview. It's been an interesting development actually, which is a little bit odd in some respects because, you know, from your own perspective, you haven't changed from before a book was published to after it's published but it then gives you a kind of a certain status so even if you're not particularly writing anything from a different angle than you had before the fact of having a book published makes it somehow seem more real in the earlier drafts of the book it was more of a kind of a standard or, or bits of it anyway were more of a standard thing of saying well okay this is how capitalism works this is how it developed etc etc getting on to the particular role of britain and the particular role in particular of um the way the financial system works and i decided to get away from that more didactic abc version of explaining things partly because it can get pretty tedious and there's been a lot of, you know, the, a lot of left-wing commentary or, you know, people who are Marxists do various blogs or writings and articles. And it can be so much of a focus on finding a way to summarize in a different way what Marx said before that, frankly, it just becomes a bit unreadable. So I decided to cover three topics in the book and weave a story around that. And one of them was the position of Britain in the global economic system, giving a, a particular focus on Britain because when, when people complain about capitalism, international capitalism, whatever, mainly in focus is the US alone, and thinking that, you know, the British, the French, the Germans, whatever, are just basically sidekicks of the Americans. So I wanted to bring out more particularly the uh, status of Britain in the setup. Another dimension was covering the financial aspects of that position, especially the role of the City of London, 
because there have been some, some coverage of international finance or whatever done by people on the radical side of the spectrum, but they would very often look upon London as just being, you know, almost an offshore center for American capitalism, American finance, which is just not true in the, in the least. I mean, the American banks play a big role. Uh, be stupid to deny that, but there's a whole lot of other things going on. And the key thing really, which was uh, why the book is subtitled talking about the global power of finance, is to show how the financial markets are an important dimension of world economic power. On the one hand, reflecting that power. So if you've got power in the world, then you're generally going to be stronger in finance, but also something that helps maintain and sustain that power as well. So it's not simply reflecting, you know, again, if you're a strong country, big corporations, big banks, etc., you're going to be important in the financial sphere. But, <clears throat> but it shows how the financial system is an important means of basically ripping off the rest of the world. And the rest of the world includes literally the rest of the world, not simply poor countries, but taking a stake and this is especially true in Britain's case, taking a stake in all the deals done worldwide, you know, wherever they come from and whoever ends up really paying the bill. So that, that, that basically is the, um, is the aspect I'm focusing on, the financial dimensions of world economic power today, but showing in particular the role that British capitalism and the city plays in that. At the moment, I'm actually... Uh, nursing my way very slowly through volume three of capital and i've just started reading a little bit in there on foreign trade the thing is on my, on my mind i mean the the book was written 150 years ago right so it'd be a bit odd if nothing had changed in the meantime now the insights into the dynamic of the system i think marx had uh, you know an, an amazing grasp of those that's why reading volume three makes sense, although a lot of the book is a big mess. And that, that's a pity, but that's just the way it is. But essentially, on the trade side, it's, you know, not, not really, it shouldn't be a surprise that, you know, one of Marx's early points he's making is that capitalism develops a world market. So you get, as capital accumulation develops and companies grow, and try and expand their markets, they're, they're going to go beyond national boundaries. And what happens under imperialism, domination of the world market by a small number of powerful countries, you get a certain structure of these markets, and that, that structure is not fixed, it changes over time. An early phase of it, say in the late 19th century, and early 20th century was um, in the form of overseas loans. You know, loans from big financial centres like uh, London in particular. Then, more importantly, uh, from the US, because the US, uh, after in the interwar period and certainly from 1945, the US became an important or the most important country from the point of view of allocating capital worldwide. But the form that it took went from portfolio investment and buying bonds, lending money to governments, things like this, you know, maybe setting up railway systems in different countries around the world. It, it moved from that to being more an international development of productive capital. So the 
foreign direct investment and big overseas operations of the companies from the major powers. That was often done in other relatively rich countries. It wasn't necessarily focused on poor countries because poor countries had uh, worse uh, transport systems, uh, worse infrastructure. They didn't have a local market into which the major corporations were trying to sell. So you would often find a lot of investment from Britain, for example, would go to, say, Australia, Canada, the US in particular, but, you know, uh, and Western Europe, uh, other rich countries. What has happened, and this has been brought out in literature over the last 20 years or so, and uh, in a book by a colleague of mine, John Smith, is that in the last couple of decades, really from the 1980s, it really got going big time from the 1980s, that most of the productive activity of the major corporation is actually done by companies based in poor countries. You know, there's a classic case of, say, Bangladesh would make most of the textiles, things like clothing, T-shirts, whatever, at, you know, rock bottom prices. And they would be part of what in economic, academic terms is called a value chain, where the, say, the big retail corporations of the Western world don't actually own these companies. I mean, they might, but on the whole, they don't. But those companies work under the lash of of the big retail corporations like Walmarts, you know, Marks and Spencers, Henderson Moritz, a whole bunch of others. And a great deal of the manufacturing industrial output takes place in poor countries, taking advantage of very low wages. And actually, the technology they're using is not they're not working in a in a shed with a screwdriver they, they might be working with foxconn in which case there are zillions of robots and they're working in huge industrial estates so their, their technology is comparable to what exists in the west and actually probably better but commercially they are in a subordinate position and the value they create, a lot of it is drained off by the likes of, you know, companies like Apple and others who use their cheap labor resources in order to um, get the goods that they can sell into the major markets. The bottom line of it is that the, the nature of world trade has changed dramatically, especially in the last 30 or so years. So this idea of, say, prior to that, you had this idea of, say, production in a Western country like Britain or wherever, making their Range Rovers and then selling them to other countries. But what we see in foreign trade more or less now is being reorientated to Western corporations owning the value chain. So they control the production at a hand's distance, which is done somewhere else. And the value was all siphoned off to the West through the financial system. Um, yeah, not entirely through the financial system, although that's an important dimension of it. And in, if you like, in my book, I'm focusing on how on the financial system aspects, because that's least understood. It's kind of slightly more straightforward to understand that if you have um, a large number of small scale suppliers or other companies that rely upon just two or three big buyers, you know, for their T-shirts, for their iPhones or whatever it is, then, um, you know, they're, they're going to be kind of exploited in that commercial relationship. So that, that's, that's one of commercial power, which 
is, I think, a very important dimension of the world today, but it, it's been covered, I think, somewhat more in academic and you know business literature and what you can read about in, in the media. The financial dimensions of it and how that works is far less understood. And so that, that's what I, had, I tried to um, put my finger on in, in the stuff that I wrote. So, yeah, let me rephrase what I said then. I suppose the corporations, they end up being kind of shell companies in, in a certain sense. You know, that is kind of somewhat separate to the financial aspect. The, the thing is that it's not as if there's some huge kind of gap between what might look like an industrial company and what is evidently a financial company. I don't want to overemphasize it. I mean, there are clearly distinct things, you know, that if you're a bank, you know, you do a certain number of functions. And if you're a, an industrial company, you do others. However, you shouldn't look upon an industrial company as being somehow divorced from the financial system. And especially, you should not look upon a company engaged in commerce but, you know, as, as being divorced from that as well. And there are examples I give in the book and, you know, other ones in presentations that I give. So, say, for example, you could choose any company that makes, you know, good, hard stuff everybody needs. It could be food. It could be, you know, car parts. It could be whatever else. And they are using the financial system to boost their power and extend their market influence and control. Yeah, I, I think an example in the book I give is how... Facebook, for example, you wouldn't think of them as a financial company, but Zuckerberg did two things. One was obviously having the company voted in the stock market then meant that the wealth or influence he had was instead of being a more private internal thing, you know, uh, uh, running this company, Facebook, instead becomes actual wealth that he can use in the market. You know, so Facebook is floated, and if you own a share of it, you're owning a share of a $100 billion company. I think initially it was around $100 billion. Now it's more like two or 300 something like that. I can't remember exactly. And what he did was float a whole bunch of shares in the company and sold them on the market to different investors, whether they be pension funds or individual investors, asset managers, whoever. And most of the shares that he sold, I think nearly all of them, were shares that didn't have any votes. So here you are, you think you own a few percent, you know, not you individually, you wouldn't be able to afford it, right? But, uh, but if you were a, a pension fund or an asset manager or an insurance company, you might own 1% of Facebook or 2 or 3%. But you probably don't have any votes on what Facebook does because Zuckerberg himself owns more than half the voting shares of the company. So essentially, he then has got control of a company worth in the stock market several hundred billion dollars. And when he bought WhatsApp a couple of years ago, he had enough cash in his back pocket, so to speak, or the company's back pocket to give the owners of WhatsApp a few billion dollars. But most of the money was paid over in the form of Facebook shares. So it's basically, I give you these Facebook shares, you give me the control of your company. So here's an important financial operation for Facebook to imprint its control of a wider range of communications technology. And they've done it with others as well, not, not simply them. And similarly, 
Google and other companies have done the same sort of thing regarding other takeovers. So they've done all of these things using the financial system. But, you know, number one, they're not banks. Number two, they may not have even used banks or financial advisors. They might have just done it off their own back, phoning, phoning somebody up. <laughs> so this is what they all do. And, and even there's, there's companies like um, in Britain, uh, Associated British Foods, company nobody's ever heard of. But they provide most of the bread and other things that go to um, British supermarkets. They own Primark, you know, the uh, supplier of very low cost clothing on the high street. And you've got a bunch of other operations as well, you know, all through stock market takeovers and all that kind of stuff. So all, all of these companies are heavily, heavily involved in financial dealing, even though they themselves, they're not banks, they're not financial companies in the normal way in which people understand it. So the point I'm making is that the financial system, while there are peculiarities of, say, banks and other financial companies that's important to understand because they help the system tick over and help it work, what they're really doing is facilitating what the underlying capitalism is trying to do, which is basically accumulate wealth and resources and control of the world market into hands of you know a bunch of rich individuals and uh, you know a small number of companies. You you were saying essentially that we have to look at say this increased financialized way we have with larger banks and a lot of more financial dealings that we sh we should also look at that as a as a function of where capitalism finds itself and not a kind of a separate movement of its own accord. Yeah, no, in a, in a nutshell, that's it. Because um, basically, this term financialize is a garbage term, frankly. And it's um, something which includes all kinds of rubbish. So I don't use it. And it's normally used by people who have a vision of somehow it is better before these horrible financialized things happened. And they're ignoring also why the horrible financialized things happened. Because even the euro markets, which are no longer spoken about now as euro markets, because that's because basically they are how the international financial markets work. But back in the 80s, before a lot of capital controls were taken off by most of the major governments, there, there used to be a, much more of a a clear um, distinction between a domestic financial market and a so-called euro market, more of an international flow of money market. And even that more international flow of money financial market got going in the 50s and 60s on the back of a big expansion of industrial capital worldwide. It was not suddenly a bunch of financiers coming up with a smart idea you know, I mean, some people would argue it is and give somebody's case that they were the first one to do this, the first one to do that. And they, you know, had a coffee in the morning and chatted with their mates and came up with a bright idea. But the reason they could do it was that there was a demand for this kind of innovation on the part of major international companies. So the core force behind the development of financial operations is the development of global capitalism. By global capitalism, are you talking about the overall expansion of capital post-World War II into different markets, or are you talking more about the offshoring of production? 
it is both because you had an important expansion of overseas industrial production, quite a lot of it from the US. But, you know, it had been in place already. You know, the, the British had all kinds of um, operations in other countries and so did the French and whoever else. But a big phase of it occurred in the 50s and 60s in the post-war world. And it was on the back of that big expansion of international productive capital, you know, where, where you'd had, you know, you, you had, I think maybe even the invention of the term multinational came then. And there's much more of a big discussion about multinationals. And you had the Europeans being worried about the big American multinationals. How are they going to compete with them? All of these sorts of things going on. But so you had um, an expansion of productive capital worldwide, more and more important, large conglomerations of companies. They might have been in mining. They might have been in industry. They might have been in commerce or a mixture of these. And the, the banking system and the financial system evolved or, or had a new phase of evolution, put it that way, around these these developments. Let's say they they didn't come out in a vacuum and just declare we've come up with this smart idea and so we're gonna do this. No, there, there had to be an underlying demand for it and the underlying demand was given by the international expansion of capital. That international expansion both being uh, in the productive sense, you know, of having operations in other countries and also in a huge expansion of international trade. And you had, through the post-war period, a lot of barriers to international trade in terms of, you know, import controls and tariffs and everything. All of those were steadily reduced. So you had a far greater reason and need to do, you know, foreign exchange deals, international loans, international financial transactions of different kinds. And, and it meant that it created what some would call a financialized world, but as I say, that ignores the fact that really it was a necessary consequence of that stage of capitalist development. Whereas when people use the term financialization, they often, it's often heavily laced with a kind of nostalgia for something else and a belief that had there been some other policies in place, things would have been very different. And frankly, it's not very plausible. We have this critique of the size of, of financial sector, well, certainly like in places like the UK and America. H how much of this critique is missing the ball? A lot of people on the left talk about how we should rein in Wall Street and rein in, in the city of London. Like, how possible is it just to legislate away what, what, what kind of functions they operate and keep a functioning, existing capital? Well, it's... Uh... Largely, I would say, uh, a stupid utopian uh, perspective. Don't hold back. Don't hold back. <laughs> um, well, say, take, for example, the, the euro markets I mentioned earlier. They grew up on the basis of capitalism's expansion internationally, requiring things that were then restricted by U.S. government legislation. Right? You know, the, the way the U.S. government tried to constrain domestic financial markets meant that companies couldn't get access to the funds they required or at the right cost. So, hence the euro markets. So, essentially, international capitalism, or, you know, capitalism generally, finds ways around any barrier. And often, legislation is proposed, which, okay, it, it, it's true that if there are any aims to control financial operations, you know, either they'll be stymied in 
legislation or legislation will be amended so it won't really have any effects. You know, fair enough, that happens. But what do you bloody expect? These are the guys running the system. They're not going to be, you know, voting to saw their own legs off, right? And basically, if you tried, it, well, if you saw that and then you thought, aha, right, if we could find a way to constrain these buggers and stop them messing everything up, right, that firstly, that view, uh, if, if you held that, would be an implicit belief on your part that the system could be okay if we stop them doing these terrible things. And that is a real naivety because let, let, let's take um, even the past 15 years or so, right? So you, you had from about the year 2000-ish, 2000, 2000, 2001 up to 2007, 2008, you had what was essentially a financial boom. You had far lower interest rates, huge run up in debts, all kinds of speculative activity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, living standards rose, unemployment fell, inflation was low, and broadly speaking, there, there wasn't actually a great deal of economic growth. It was fairly weak, given all these things going on. But, you know, people's living standards rose. Then the thing hit a brick wall in 2007, 2008. You know, oh shit, there's a huge amount of debt. It's all now blown up in my face. And in some countries, the spending levels of individuals were above their incomes, right? They had a negative savings ratio. So to blame the the blow up in 2007, 2008 on the financial system, number one, it makes you think, well, why aren't you complaining about this over the past five, six, seven, eight years? You know, well, you weren't complaining because your living standards are rising. And even if I told you that your living standards are rising on an illusory basis, you know, just an expansion of credit to give you um, better living standards, and, you know, in the you know, you're, you're no presumably about a case in Ireland. You know, this was all wonderful stuff, right? And then the, then the whole thing went to shit in, in 2008. Well, you know, number one, it, you know, it, it, it's ignoring the, the previous situation wasn't normal either. You know, so to complain about the crisis would have more credibility if they were complaining about the boom as well. What they're missing by just complaining about the crisis is how come capitalism gets itself in the situation in the first place? And it gets itself in that situation because underlying profitability wasn't enough. So you found these companies, these banks, these financial institutions, but all kinds of companies, not simply financial ones, were getting involved in all kinds of harebrained schemes to make their profitability look better and keep themselves ticking over and running up higher levels of debt. Really, it was a sign that something was going wrong with capitalism already, even in the boom years. But in the boom years, nobody gives a damn about it. You know, things are fine, everything's good. And then when the good turns bad, you blame the apparent trigger or, you know, the immediate cause of it as being the problem not looking at the underlying factors, even in the boom period. And it wasn't much of a boom anyway, in terms of uh, growth of output or productivity between 2000 and 2007, 2008. Frankly, it was slowly falling apart, but you couldn't see it. And it was only when the bubble blew up to a certain level and then burst, then, you know, you had this big, big reversal. And then people are blaming the financial system for causing it rather than the financial system. It was part of it for sure. You know, it'd be silly to deny that, but 
you need to explain how did he get into that situation in the first place that we live in this kind of irrational, stupid system called capitalism that produces these sorts of things. One term I heard you given out about is the use of the term neoliberalism, and I, I totally agree. People talk about, say, the current situation we have. When they use the term neoliberalism, it sounds like they want to return to the 1950s or something. I prefer to use the term capitalism. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, if the problem is profit, which was the big problem in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to try and exploit more. And where can you exploit China? That's another word I don't use because it's the concentration of garbage is, uh, you know, <laughs> no, I, I, I just find it, it it's it's again, frankly, a dishonest, I would say nostalgic term for a period that didn't even exist. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember what the 1970s were like before neoliberalism. And these characters who talk about neoliberalism want to date it from 1979 you know, with Thatcher and Reagan and whatever. But things were in the shit in the 1970s before Thatcher and Reagan. All kinds of things that they would talk about as being neoliberal were coming into operation during that period. And they were reactions on the part of government policy to the fact that the capitalist system wasn't working properly. Or, you know, not sorry, it wasn't working properly, it wasn't working. (laughs) And um, there's this kind of dumb notion, which is unfortunately prevalent among people who study economics, that there's a kind of Keynesian period that was wonderful in the 50s and 60s. Governments took responsible social welfare policies, kept unemployment low, growth was doing a riot, etc, etc. And then along came these reactionary neoliberals who wanted to have a go at trade unions and the working class, and then the whole thing fell apart. Complete, complete, complete garbage. They had to change their policy because the capitalist system was falling apart. And in Britain's case, you had their earlier exploitation of the colonies was failing. So they moved into trying to compete more with other major powers and were not making a very good job of it. In the wider capitalist world, you had all kinds of competition growing between um, the major powers, which was then causing the weaker ones to get into bigger and bigger trouble. So you had problems in America, you had problems in France in particular, Germany and Japan seemed to be doing all right. You know, they were the ones winning out in competition at those times. So you found that um, the move towards dropping a Keynesian government spending type policy came, actually it was, you know, well before Thatcher in Britain, it was more in 1976, I think, under Callaghan and the Labour government, saying that we can't spend our way out of recession anymore. It happened to other, other extents in other countries, but a little bit later. So you had under Mitterrand, the French socialist president, basically having to reverse his view on trying to spend his way out of recession and realising that French economic and political power was going to diminish unless he tried to sort the economy out. So all of these harsher austerity-based policies of the so-called neoliberals were forced upon them by the screw-ups in the international capitalist economy. There was no neoliberal kind of seizure of power or political coup. It's a completely stupid way of looking at how policy develops. It was a response to the fact that the capitalist economy wasn't working. So I suppose one of the critiques would be that there could have been different responses. You know, that the neoliberals 
were prepared for a crisis and they got their response? Yeah, uh, no, there, there could have been. I'm not, you know, you can't say things are inevitable. You can say they're much better explained by what you're putting forward as the causes than what other people are saying. But sure, there could have been other things. But when you look at the forces at play, they didn't have much choice. They had to find a way of trying to raise profitability. And that's what they did. It meant closing down collapse out industries it meant you know putting people on the dole it meant cutting living standards and actually they didn't do it that much unemployment was a lot higher but it wasn't a drastic drop in living standards there wasn't you know even under thatcher in britain all the so-called cuts were often changes to previous spending programs but the level of spending still went up not only in nominal terms and also in so-called real terms so you know government welfare spending went up anyway it, it, you know there, there was not it wasn't like you know nazi stormtroopers on the streets gunning down unemployed workers you know you didn't get anything like that but what they did do was close down a whole lot of industry that couldn't compete on the world market and try and do something different and this was the context in which in british policy there was more of an orientation towards developing the financial sector because that was one area where Britain had a competitive advantage. And in, in other sectors, you know, in defense, pharmaceuticals, one or two others, where there wasn't a huge amount of employment from those sectors, they, you know, kept them going. But they, they basically were trying to make the system work. Obviously, they, they were doing reactionary anti-working class things, of course. But what the hell do you expect? And then when you see what apparently uh, left-wing government, socialist, social democrat, whatever you want to call them, were doing, largely they, they were not in power because, frankly, their, their solutions of capitalism were just not plausible. You know, so popular opinion would vote conservative rather than voting Labour because, you know, Labour's policies look as if they wouldn't work. There would be no policies that would be consistent with maintaining living standards and keeping things ticking over with social welfare and all the rest of it that would be possible if you want to keep capitalism ticking over as well. So what they did was uh, they had to bite the bullet and say, okay, we want to keep capitalism working, this is what we need to do. Of course, they didn't express it in that way, but that's, that was the gist of it. Talk a lot in your book about the role of Britain in the world economy. Can you explain why you think it's really quite a dominant force? It's it's basically, especially in the wake of the Brexit thing, on a sliding down scale, basically. But um, the the point I would make, though, nevertheless, is that on an international level, you know, I think Britain's a number five or six in GDP terms, the second biggest international foreign investor, the biggest base for the trading of foreign exchange very big in all kinds of other financial dimensions. The status of Britain being, you know, permanent member of the Security Council, et cetera, et cetera, all of these sorts of things are all aspects of Britain's economic and political power. And much more than you would think, you know, if you listen to just general critiques of capitalism or power in the world today, you know, the, the Brits would be, on my reckoning, yeah, this is a year or two old. If I updated it, maybe it would be slightly different. But on my reckoning of different dimensions of power, they're number two to the US, 
clearly far below the US. I mean, I wouldn't be foolish enough to think that, you know, Britain and the US have got the same degree of economic political power. That's obviously not true. But when you consider the role they play politically in all kinds of things, it's something that is much more than, than people take on board. Even in international banking, although, uh, yeah, say banking, finance and foreign exchange or whatever, although the US dollar is, you know, by far the dominant currency, the main location for trading the US dollar is in London. It's not in New York. So this, as I say, brings out there's a much higher status for British imperialism than you would think. In the way of the, the Brexit vote, no doubt that's going to come under some pressure. I think in economic terms, it was frankly a stupid thing to do, but it shows and it's an indication that there is a problem that if you, if you have a democratically elected government, you know, given all the caveats of influence on voting and media control and all that stuff, but basically you've got a large number of people voting for a government, then the problem is the ruling class has got to take into account popular opinion. And popular opinion, especially in England, went for Brexit, basically as a protest that the earlier phase of, you know, what's called globalization hadn't done a lot, a lot of people many, much good. Interesting sociological surveys about Brexit showing that you can more or less uh, break it down by in-group. And in lower income groups, the bulk of the people who voted for Brexit, you'd have, you know, Nalgia freaks wanting to re-establish the British Empire or something. But broadly speaking, that was true. And I, I think it's a reaction to depressed living standards, but it's a reactionary one. A reactionary reaction. So you found rather than people blaming capitalism, particularly British capitalism, for being behind. This is the joke, right? That they're blaming the EU for all the things affecting their living standards when it is the British who were the main proponents of anti-working class views in the EU. And that is why the Germans and the French love them. You know, the, the French and the Germans could basically introduce rules that they would find difficult to do in their own domestic populations, you know, undermining the positions of trade unions or middle class professions or whatever, because of um, what the British were doing. So you had this uh, completely stupid, misguided anti-EU reaction which, you know, should have been directed instead against the British ruling class, who'd, you know, promoted most of these things. <laughs> so um, I, I, I just found it really to be quite paradoxical that you had a political decision that was clearly against the interests of the British ruling class having to be accepted by them because they needed to maintain the political support of the general population. And the sad thing is that it's not as if the general population had like a positive progressive outlook or something and then forced, you know, in a vote for something good that happened. No, the, the general popular view was a reactionary one. And I don't think you can say anything else about it. As an Irish guy who moved over to the UK, living in London now, when I first moved over, when you're exposed full on to the UK media, it was amazing how anti-EU it was. You know, people that would be on, say, respected political people on BBC just saying things that were completely false, outright lies about the EU. And it, it's weird because they, it seemed to me that they always used this EU as a kind of a, a thing to blame for the actual policies they were doing. So it was a kind of a way of protecting, say, you know, the Tories or whoever from actually 
what their policies were. But then, <laughs> weirdly, like it took on a life of its own and it, there was true believers and uh, came back and bit them on the ass. The thing is that there's always been, but it's been a minority, nevertheless, but there's always been a sizable minority of you know, anti-European perspectives in British politics. And even back in 1973, I think it was, uh, was it, uh, when, when, when the vote took place, it was a referendum was one third to not join the EU or not maintain the membership or something. Uh, no, sorry, 75 the, was when a referendum took place. Yeah, 75 under, under Labour government when they said, OK, we're going to have a referendum on this. The previous deal was done in Parliament. We're going to have a popular referendum. When the referendum took place, it was one third of the population were for leaving and two thirds were for staying. You know, so it's a sizable chunk for something that was a policy then on the part of the British government and the British ruling class for getting closer to a major trading partner, being much better deal for the growth of British capitalism compared to what they had before. The Labour Party view at the time was promoting building up a Commonwealth view or the Labour Party left view, I should say, under Ben and people like that, promoting um, a socialistic Labourite left view, but pro-Commonwealth. So they wanted a kind of imperialism, colonialism light <laughs> relationship with, you know, Australia, New Zealand and uh, countries in Africa and elsewhere. So they, they wanted to use British power in a different way, thinking that that would be somehow more progressive. All of their views are based upon how can we best use British power for our own interests in the world. So back then in 1975, it's, you know, two to one majority in favor of uh, staying in the EU or the EC, it was then called. This time around, because of the impact of globalization, so-called, but in particular immigration, the vote went the other way. I mean, it wasn't as big a vote. It's relatively close, right? You know, it wasn't as big as a majority, but it, but it showed that if you can get what essentially was an anti-immigrant vote being the dominant force in British politics, what, you know, poor prospects there are in British political life for anything progressive developing. It seemed to be particularly true of the English working class, less so in, say, Scotland, Wales and uh, Northern Ireland as part of the UK. My, my view, I, I abstained in the vote, you know, because I, I thought the debate was crap. My view is not to say, you know, I would take a decision on a choice whose options are framed in terms of which is the best option for the British ruling class or for British capitalism, for British imperialism. That's basically what it boiled down to. And I thought clearly the Leave vote was a reactionary one, but, you know, I wasn't going to vote stay either because I, I thought that, that they're just presenting you with a debate, which is a crap debate. You don't need to accept the terms of that debate and just instead say clearly what you think is at stake and where you stand on that. And I wrote a number of articles in my blogs to explain my position. Whereas no, normally, you know, if you abstain on something, people say, oh, you're just walking away from a problem, you can't face it or something, or you don't want to take a decision. But I'm, I'm just saying that I'm not accepting that the choice that I'm given is one that I think is a legitimate one where you can say yes or no. I'm also quite surprised by how much people are upset by it. You know, voting yes or voting no, it's not going to usher in the revolution in the morning. Your, Indeed, you know, yeah. your pay might be 7% worse off or 3% better off. You know, who knows? But that's the level of, of it. Yeah, it, it's basically, again, it's, you know, the best you can say about it, you know, which is the best option for British capitalism? We say, well, 
I don't want there to be an option of British capitalism, you know, or British imperial rule in the world. Um, I want to get rid of it. So why is this a debate I need to get involved in? You know, I was wondering if you could say a little about how militarism works and the importance of it in the way our capitalism is currently structured. It's important on the margins. It is basically, uh, I'd say it's a mixture of two things. One is to, well, on, on, on the whole, it's been used to stop things getting out of hand and being too disruptive. So when you find, um, you know, British getting involved in Sierra Leone or the French invading Chad and Mali and whatever, you know, they're, they're trying to keep a lid on a situation that's a disaster. They do that, but they've got a relatively free hand in invading poor subordinated countries and they can more or less do what they like. When it comes to areas of the world where there are competing major country interests, obviously in the Middle East, in Syria, and uh, you know elsewhere in the region, then it's far more complicated for them. And they have all kinds of difficulties because they want to avoid a direct conflict with another major power. And also, they've got problems when, you know, when the major countries, you know, having invaded Iraq and Afghanistan and made such a mess of it, there's a bit of local skepticism about whether it's going to be a good idea to do the same thing again. <laughs> so the, the militarism thing is, uh, it's an important tool. I wouldn't say, you know, last resort, because they, they often do it well before the last resort. But it's something that they're more wary of doing directly. And instead, you find um, extensive developed networks by the British, the Americans, the French, whoever, to, you know, supply funds and armaments to different groups in all kinds of different countries. And the Brits have been doing this for decades and the Americans too, you know, it depends which part of the world you're talking about. In in Syria, you know, the, the British have been funneling a lot of money to the rebels against uh, Assad, you know, the Saudis and the Turks and whoever have been doing the same thing. But it's blown up in their face because it's not an easy situation to solve. And it reflects also the inability of America, despite being the hegemonic power, to impose a solution. They've, you know, they've screwed it. They... They're not even in the in the running for trying to determine what the outcome is going to be, and you know if anything, Russia's made and made idiots out of them. So you find a lot of policies basically around the idea of number one, trying to make sure that no country steps out of line to disrupt the operations of capitalism, and you know America has been the main guarantor of that, and obviously especially in uh, Latin America. And, you know, the slapping down of Saddam Hussein in the uh, Kuwait invasion, that, that was a good example of that as well, you know. But doing that is is something that to keep, keep the system ticking over. You just make sure nobody steps out of line. There are bigger things at play, and when it more to, um, to do what you like without weighing up all uh, the responses of the other countries involved, then it becomes... A far bigger problem for them, and reflects the difficulties that they're that they're, they're generally having. You know, so I think, for example, on the internet somewhere, there's some some ticker that kind of is updated every second on how many trillion dollars um, the Americans have spent on the Iraq War. And I can't remember the last number, but it's you know some stupendous bunch of zeros. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, like three trillion dollars or some ridiculous number like this. So. 
when when these things happen, they they find it more difficult to get support with their local population for any more adventures. But it doesn't take that much, actually. So they normally dress it up in human rights crap. So you, you had, um, you know, a debate in the British Parliament about whether to bomb Syria and, you know, be the great humanitarians, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that didn't work out so well for the government at the time. And similarly in, in America, you know, they're skeptical about what they could really do, would it make any difference, etc. But, but you find that there's this almost genetically inbuilt thing among the imperialist powers to cause mischief everywhere. You know, backing, you know, fascistic, heavy-duty right-wing characters in uh, Ukraine. All that's part of a liberation movement and everything uh, against the evil Russians, ignoring the record of these people. There's been generally a lack of coherence, a lack of power to force a solution that they would have had probably 30, 40 years ago. So you find, you know, half the world is on fire, basically, and there's no real end to this in sight. With the current structure of how all these major corporations say are kind of not exactly shell companies, but they're kind of small financial type companies managing their relationship to production in, say, the Far East most of the time. don't know if that's the politically correct term. Let's say China and Asia. Is there a risk for the West, for the capitalists, that somehow they can lose control Say they, they control all this through, you know, the financial, the legal aspects, whereby one, one day China wakes up and just goes, uh, yeah, we're not going to play those rules anymore. All this production, we're just going to produce all these things ourselves and keep all the, all the value. Is there, is there a risk for the Western imperial powers? Um, there is, yeah. And, um, in my book, I have a kind of a ranking of imperial powers. And what you got, U- US is clearly the top one. And the UK head, shoulders, and more or less elbows below the US, but nevertheless number two. Number three power is China. And China has been growing in the rankings steadily over the last decade or so. And it's, if anything, with the stagnation in a lot of Western capitalist countries, China, although it's got all kinds of domestic economic problems and bad debts and all the rest of it, it is still growing and still gaining influence. It's doing it in a way which unfortunately is pissing off a lot of local countries. So you found that um, one of Obama's uh, latest moves was to get this Trans-Pacific Partnership. I can't remember the the initials now. And um, that was explicitly to exclude China. The Brits had a different view. This is an interesting distinction between the policy of the British compared to the policy of the Americans as compared to the usual story that the Brits are just, you know, lackeys of the Americans. But the, the British have been cozying up to China for a number of years now in the financial sphere, in terms of trying to attract investment and all the rest of it. And the, the Chinese have been gaining in economic direct investment influence, in financial influence. Even the growth of their currency has been dramatic. It's still a very minor currency, but it's now, I can't remember if I'm like number seven, number eight in the world rather than you know, number 99, in terms of the volume of it traded. And the volume of it traded now has, you know, been growing quite a bit to the extent to which um, in the latest Bank for International Settlement Survey, London's foreign exchange position fell back. It was still well above everybody else, but it fell back. And a lot of it was due to weakness in Europe, 
economic weakness in Europe and a big growth of financial developments in Asia, you know, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. So there is a definite rise of important Asian countries with China in the lead. You know, they're, they're not on each other's side, don't get it wrong. It's not as if there's some big group of Asia against Europe or whatever, you know, each one got different interests doing different things. But it's um, very much the case that China's power has grown dramatically in the past number of years. Uh, I, say, and I, I detail examples in the, uh, over that period in, in the book, and you know there, there are others more or less every day of the week that you can read about in the media as well. So that means that the tectonic plates, if you like, of imperial power are shifting, and it's no longer the case that the world has to do what half a dozen US, West European powers want them to do. And it's uh, a recipe for instability in the existing structure of imperialist power relations. But it's one that is going to be an interesting uh, environment for global politics as well. There's going to be lots of things going on in the next next few years. And uh, interestingly, uh, with Trump, I I wrote an article in my blog on this uh, just about a week ago, um, that basically uh, it would appear that in some respects, Trump is more likely to side politically with what Russia is doing, because that's not really an economic threat to the Americans. The economic threat to the Americans is China, and Trump's kind of more nationalistic economics tallies with a broad popular opinion in America, not simply among the white working class. It's you know very, very broad in America that China is a big problem and a, an economic threat. So there is a, a change in relationships probably going to come about in the Trump taking charge. And it's, um, you know, a, a different ball game from what was true in the past 20 years. You know, there are other players on the global scale now, whereas it used to be the Americans and American allies, you know, running the show. And that's not true anymore. So China are expanding their Silk Road, this idea of linking up the Asian continent with a high-speed rail into Europe even. Russia are a member of the Shanghai Cooperation, as is Iran, and I think India and Pakistan are getting into that Silk Road, and even linking into Germany by train, I think even as far as Portugal. So we seem that the the great fear of, say, imperial strategists would be, you know, an Asiatic continent that gets closer linked and becomes a, its own economic kind of a unit. Should we see this Trump cozying up to Russia, the split in, say, the establishment politics in America as a as a way to try and fracture that kind of coming together of the two great Asiatic powers of Russia and China? Yeah, that, no, they'll, they'll try all kinds of things. I mean, the, the, the American strategy before was to endorse India's you know accession to having nuclear power and nuclear weapons. China's been on America's radar for a very long time, and they wanted to have India on their side and, you know, against China. The deals between India and China are a bit fragile. You know, they've had border wars over, not not recently, but they have had in the post-war period. And, you know, they're, they're not the best of friends necessarily. But and, and I think for that reason, there is no great political unity among that group of powers, say, or, you know, group second tier powers, you know, say with Iran and whatever. But they're all pissed off 
about how the infrastructure of the world economy is run by the Americans and the Europeans. So they want to say, well, okay, we want to do something different. And similarly, a whole bunch of, of African and Latin American countries think have now got you know, another competitor to play with. They don't need to accept what the IMF and the World Bank tells them. They might get better money on better terms from the Chinese-based Asian Investment Bank. So there's all these things, you know, shaking up uh, the existing structure of power relations. But it's not to say that China, India, Russia, whoever else are like one unit. And they, they've all got different vulnerabilities and they would all want to keep selling into the world market. But it's something that is going to cause a reassessment of strategic relationships by you know the Europeans, uh, the Americans and whoever else. So they, they got a different ball game to play. And the the previous automatic anti-Russian perspective is something that is not going to do them much good any longer because, you know, they've got more than one enemy. How do they play that? And I, I think Trump is probably one of the first people to see that, whereas you find among some of the West Europeans and especially the Brits that, you know, like the anti-Putin propaganda in, um, in the British media is pretty astonishing. You know, I can hardly say he's a nice guy, but basically what he's doing is actually relatively sensible compared to what those buggers have been doing for decades. The level of propaganda is amazing at the minute. There was an article today on the front page of the BBC website and The Guardian and all these ones about how a Russian anti-doping official has admitted that the Russian state was running a state-sponsored, you know, doping system. It turned out that what he actually did was he quoted a statement in one of the reports and then they basically ascribed that to him and then put it up as a main headline that Russia has admitted to doping. You know, the first paragraph says what he said and then the second paragraph says, well, he was only quoting this and they have, you know, the Russians have appealed (laughs) against what were our poor journal aesthetics. If any news comes up about Russia, I never pay any attention to the British-based press. It's just, as I say, it's funny, it's almost as if they're kind of genetically unable to, you know, to come up with a straight story, you know, giving the evidence one way or the other. They just always have to find some anti, anti-Russian anti thing. And, uh, you know, again, I, I'm far from saying that, that Russian policy is, you know, some progressive wonderland. It isn't. But basically, the, the British media is almost psychotic in being anti-Russian. And then you... You see uh, media in other countries or other things available on the internet give a far more interesting, detailed and balanced view about what's really going on. Well, thanks very much, Tony, for coming on the show today. Yeah, I hope that my earlier comments don't appear to be too much like random ramblings. We'll find out. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to another Sun Ra track, the inappropriately named Song Number One. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.